want to be a CEO? It's a tough mountain to climb. I'm finding out how to get there and what to do once you make it to the top. I'm Michael Thompson, and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Now, last time we were joined by a guest who's been through more ups and downs in business leadership than most. He's back again today and we'll be with him again in a moment. First, though, as always, I'm joined by Philip Levinson, CEO, CEO mentor, and the author of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. Lev, g'day. Thanks, Michael. Good to be here. So Brian Hartzer, former CEO of Westpac, our guest on the last episode, very happy to say he's back with us again today because for someone wanting an insight into leadership at the very top of the tree, as I do, it doesn't get much better than this. Now, Brian has written a book, The Leadership Star, where he takes his three decades of experience as a leader within the banking industry and breaks it all down. It's a terrific read. Brian, welcome back to Three Peaks Leadership. Now, last time, we were talking about the five C's within the book and we got waylaid after we got to, we got to the second. We got through care being the first, context being the second C, and then we we're going to get on to number three C, which was clarity. Yeah. So clarity, I break it down into three things. So there's role clarity, which is do people really know what their job is? Do they know what they're accountable for? Do they know who they need to work with and what empowerment they have? There's goal clarity, which is about making sure people know exactly what's expected of them, what good looks like and what great looks like. And then there's behavioral clarity, which is what it sounds like. It's have you defined the values of the organization? Have you been really clear with people about what behavior is okay and what behavior isn't okay? And that all might sound rather obvious, but again, like with context, I have seen far too many times where leaders don't actually take the time to spell that out for people. They make assumptions, people are afraid to ask, and then if you don't get that right, people spend their time on the wrong things or they go off and behave in ways that that clearly aren't acceptable. So it's just having the discipline to take the time to be really, really clear with people about what you expect. And then we might just quickly race through the, the the final two C's within the, the the five C's, and then we'll actually look at why the five C's are important and, and why the, that model came to you. Sure. So the, the the fourth C on the list is clear the way. Yeah. So that's about identifying barriers that get in the way of people's success. So these can be physical barriers, like they don't have the right tools, or the right working environment. They can be financial. Maybe they don't have the resources to achieve what you want, or what I think of as invisible barriers, emotional barriers, office politics, lack of training, intellectual barriers. And the subtlety here is that leaders need to take the time to go and ask and to actually make an effort to discover what those barriers are, because sometimes people don't really realize that they're in a, a prison of the mind that they that something's getting in the way. And so I'm encouraging leaders to dive into the detail occasionally to look at the specific things that frontline people are dealing with and to help knock those barriers over for people so that they can be successful. And some of those barriers I would imagine would be a lot easier to clear than than others. Say for example a, a financial barrier would be one that's relatively easily resolved compared to, say, more emotional or a lack of training that may prevent somebody achieving what they are setting out to achieve. Yeah. I mean, the way I first stumbled on this one was way back at the beginning of my managerial career, I went to give a town hall discussion to an operations function. And um, I was doing my thing and talking about strategy and 
thinking I was being very compelling. And I asked her questions and it was all very, very silent. And then eventually somebody put their hand up and I was very excited because I was going to get this question. I thought they were going to ask me about the strategy. And and their question was, can we get a new copy machine? <laughs> and I said, a uh, new copy machine? And they said, yeah, well, um, we don't have the budget for it and ours breaks down all the time. And so we're always standing around in a big long queue waiting for the copy machine to be fixed. And I said, well, you need a copy machine to do your jobs? And everyone shook their heads, yes, yes, yes. And I said, okay, well, let's get a new copy machine. And suddenly everybody got incredibly excited. And <laughs> my whole contribution to them as leader was that they, the, as the budgets had flowed down into the organization, some mid-level person decided we don't have the budget for a new copy machine. And so instead you had dozens of people standing around half the day um, not being able to do their job. And and that was something where you would have hoped that the the mid level manager would have had the discipline to uh, recognize that wasn't so smart and push back, but but that was something I I could fix easily and um and as a consequence they got more productive and they also got a lot happier and suddenly the the barrier is cleared wow that's a very interesting point uh, Brian because it's the difference between delegation and execution isn't it yeah. Yeah, I think, and this is a really, probably a bit of a digression here, but it's become so trendy to say that senior people need to delegate. And sure, that is true. But in my experience, you don't abdicate. You still have to be willing and have the judgment to know when to dive into the detail to really look at what people are dealing with. Because sometimes only the most senior people can recognize what the issues are that need to be addressed. And, and so I'm, I talk about this in the book at a fair level that part of your job as a senior leader is not to do people's jobs for them, but it is to go out and look at what's actually going on and to recognize where things aren't working the way that they should be. Because people are generally good corporate citizens and they will, they will suck a lot up because they think that, that that's what they have to do. And, they, and then they may over time just come to accept things that really they shouldn't be accepting. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, of course, there's the scourge, as we've talked before, there's the scourge of micromanagement. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fine line. Isn't it? After you fix the issue, it's almost that you have to step away. My work here is done. And, uh, and I'll move on. So was that what occurred? You used the copier example, which I love. Was that what occurred? You sort of sat down with some of the people that you had delegated to and said, listen, you know, you've got to, you've got to get into ensuring that the business actually works while still accepting the delegated responsibility that I've passed down. Yes. I mean, the way I used to approach it is twofold. So one was trying to lead by example by actually going out and doing site visits and meeting with customers and getting people to show me the folder that they were working on or the computer screen that they were using. And then I would, depending on what I saw, would would raise questions. And not because I was personally trying to fix everything, but because by digging into that, I was trying to show my managers, this is what I expect you to be doing. Yeah. And then I think the second part was through questioning and making sure that I was using my own experience of different parts of the business to ask the more senior leaders probing questions, which would make them realize they needed to know their business. And certainly, a lot of the things that I think went wrong in financial services were a consequence of too much delegation and senior people not being aware enough of, of what was actually going on in, in detail. Yeah. So let's go, if we may, to the fifth C, which is celebrate. Uh, we don't celebrate our successes. We beat ourselves up way too much when things go wrong. And we don't celebrate our successes enough. Can you elaborate a bit on that, 
Uh, Brian? Yeah, so celebrate for me is really about recognition. And so if you think about the structure of the seas, the idea being people feel valued as individuals, they understand why they're there, they're clear on what they need to achieve, you've taken steps to make it possible for them to achieve it, they should therefore be successful. And so then the final bit is the recognition that creates a positive spiral where they are recognized for the good work that they've done. It makes them feel good, makes them want to do more, helps them stay emotionally engaged and, and want to keep contributing. Now, the subtlety about recognition is if you talk about recognition with most executives, the things that they immediately think about are pay, performance pay, and promotions. And, and while those have a role, my observation is that those are not the things that necessarily build emotional connection to the role and to the organization. And that, so, so what I talk about in the book is the need to be creative about thinking about how you do both the periodic and formal recognition as well as the very frequent and informal recognition, that you're not just recognizing people from the top, but you're creating a culture of peer recognition within the organization, that you're thinking about how you can use symbolic bits of recognition that don't necessarily have to cost a lot, but can have a big emotional impact. Um, and, and the other aspect being thinking carefully about who and how you're recognizing people, because that sends a real message about what's actually important in the organization as opposed to maybe what you say. In other words, if you say that you care about customer service, but the people who get the promotions and get the, the pay increases are all the salespeople that generate revenue, well, the organization will start to make a conclusion about what really matters and how much you actually care about values and behavior, for example. Yeah, it's an area fraught with difficulties, as we've seen by the grant of watches. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Which, you know, on balance is actually not, um, not a bad thing. And in fact, when I was at Westpac, I gave the 20 year gold watch to, to, to a couple of people, which they really appreciated. Yeah. Um, so it seems like the, the world has, has fallen away from the ability to, to celebrate and, and we're in danger of becoming this amorphous mass that neither celebrates nor overly uh, criticizes nor tries to find a better way of inventing a new mousetrap. You know, it's funny, you mentioned the, the watches thing. The, the subtlety of that, is, and I, I remember that history within the banks, is that the gold watch thing is not about the value of the watch. It's about this is something that only people who've been with the company for 20 or 25 or 30 years or whatever it is can achieve. Yeah. And, and it's, it's as much about how that's delivered and the way the individual is recognized in front of their peers yeah. as it is about the value of the watch itself. It's not about just going out to a shop and buying a fancy watch. No, I completely agree, and in fact, I, I had great sympathy because I thought that it was it, it was a a celebration that had been taken completely out of context. But if an, a dollar amount of equal to the value of the watch had been placed in the employee's uh, bank account with a note of thanks, that was probably it would not have had the same effect, but it certainly wouldn't have had the same detrimental impact on the career of that that CEO. Quite right. So again, an interesting area to watch and another minefield in the world that is um, corporate culture. It can be. It can be. Brian, can I ask you a question about crisis management? You, you you speak in your book about 
how to lead staff during a crisis. And a, a lot of it seems to come down to, and this is really paraphrasing and summarizing at the same time, planning, recognizing that the, the needs of your team have changed as a result of and during a, a crisis, being decisive and communicating, which has been a bit of a theme over this and the last episode about the need to to communicate clearly and to communicate extensively, not just during a crisis, but at all times. How does it differ between crises? And I'd just like to, to focus on this for a sec because we've been through one of the biggest crises that probably any business is going to deal with in terms of the the pandemic. But how does something like that or the way that a business would respond to a crisis like that that's that's quite that comes on quite quickly and lasts for such a long time compared to say what you would have navigated and what you steered Westpac through during the Royal Commission? Yeah, well, you know, I think that there are some common factors that I found when I when I was thinking about what to say about crisis, I came to find that there were actually some common philosophies that I think do work across many of these things. Um, th- there was one step that that I would add to what you described, which is about laying the groundwork. So I think part of dealing with crisis is to prepare in advance, and that is to think about what are the kinds of things that might come at us, and if they did, what would we do? And actually, as odd as it might sound, practicing a through role-playing, because we found certainly at the bank that those role-playing exercises helped us identify where we didn't have our act together and where we needed to get clear on contacting, how we would contact different kinds of people and what sort of messages we would say. I just draw out a couple of other little things. I think that the key for me, as you say, is to recognize that when things are going well, people worry about fulfillment. They worry about their their career ambitions and the like. When you go into crisis, people fall down the Maslow's hierarchy, if you will, and they become much more focused on basic safety and security type issues. And is my job okay? Is my family going to be okay? Am I okay? And, and so I think leadership needs to, to acknowledge that those are the things people are, are thinking about. And in terms of dealing with such an extended crisis, I think the, the trick in my mind is a combination of being upfront with people because uncertainty is the thing that I think is, is very stressful for people. So being just open about what you know and what you don't know. I think it's it's empathy and and saying to people, you know, I know it's hard, and yeah, we're we're struggling as well. I mean, I think we've seen cases of. Um, I remember seeing a uh, a picture of of one of my former banking competitor CEOs uh, sitting at home and doing his work in his home office and and acknowledging that he was finding it hard and frustrating as well. I think so that people feel that they're they're not alone, um, that that everyone's in it together. And then the, the final thing I would, I would observe is that one of the really hard things, and we're, when, as we're recording this, we're, we're in lockdown again, is, is the sense of people not having control and that there's somebody else out there making decisions for me and I don't have control over my situation. And I think that the lack of control is the thing that creates a lot of anxiety for people in my observation. And so if you can find ways to show people what actions they can take, what choices they do have, and help people share ideas about how they can exert some form of control over aspects of their life. I think that goes a long way 
to helping reduce the emotional cost of these crises. All right, so we're nearly out of time, but Lev, part of the title of your book is How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. So I think it's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about the end beyond part. Brian, how did you go about adjusting to life after being the CEO of, of Westpac? And I suppose the thing that I, I would really like to know is the the morning after when you woke up, the morning after wake uh, after walking out of the building for the for the very last time, what was the first thing that went through your mind? That morning, that I didn't have to set my alarm clock. <laughs> <laughs> so it was. It was also midday at the time. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't quite that late. Um, it, well, actually, as, as it happens, um, my kids. It was toward the end of of the school year. Um, I had a daughter graduating um, from high school, and um, and so really, I was. <laughs> I had a lot of family things that I I needed to focus on. Obviously, it was a very very strange time, and. The amount of uh, publicity around the whole issue was was an interesting thing to get my head around. Um, we uh, we decided, my wife and I decided, it was probably best to just go have a holiday somewhere. We hadn't been away for a while, so we did a quick kind of planning of a holiday and went and sat on a beach for a couple of weeks. Um, but I think that the important thing that I would share from that experience, which is partially answering your question and partially answering a related question is that I always knew something like that could happen. And I always prepared myself for the fact that I could wake up one day and, and something would happen and I might have to resign. That's just the nature of the beast. And I knew that from the day that I was offered the job. And so as in the, in the couple of weeks running up to my having to leave, I was able to draw on the fact that I'd always had this notion. And I'd, I'd prepared myself along the way. I used to joke with people that I had a list of things to do when I got fired. And um, whenever I'd say that to someone, they would, they would laugh at me and say, oh, no, 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 you'll be here for 10 years. And I would say, well, you know, maybe, but, but this is a pretty volatile thing. You can't control exactly what's going to happen with everyone on your watch. And, and um, timing is everything in these things. So uh, I think when it started to become clear that this might happen, I was able to put myself in a frame of mind of, well, okay, here we go. And uh, and I had worked really hard to make sure that my self-image wasn't completely wrapped up in being CEO of Westpac. And I had other interests. And so I tried to just think about, okay, well, I guess I'm going to get to work through that list. And uh, But, you know, obviously it was, it was difficult. Well, we wish you all the very best. You, you've made a hell of a dent already into that list from what we can see. <laughs> we wish you all the best with that. Thank you. You know, it was fun doing the book and uh, hopefully people will um, will find some useful techniques and ideas in there that um, I've been able to accumulate over the years. Brian, thank you for joining Three Peaks Leadership. My pleasure. That was Brian Hartzer, former CEO of Westpac and the author of The Leadership Star. That's it for today. Remember to hit subscribe or follow on the podcast so that you get the next episode automatically. And while you're online, why not pick up a couple of books this time? The Leadership Star by Brian Hartzer and, of course, Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond by Philip Levinson. You can get them both from anywhere that sells books, Booktopia, Amazon, Dimmicks, you name it. Thanks very much for your company today. I'm Michael Thompson and this is Three Peaks leadership with Philip Levinson.